Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Kalfa. Let's talk about some wolves. I said that we would be back quickly, and we are. So Stephen, myself, and Renee, and Elena, our manager of pack services, is here with us as well. She was our fourth on the trip. So Elena, we did just want to jump in and talk to you really quick first, because it was your first time in Yellowstone. You did get to see wild wolves. Just tell everybody your feelings and your experiences just from being there in the park with with all of us. Hi, everybody. Um, okay, so my experience was nothing short of amazing. And it was everything I've ever dreamed of as a little girl. I can't even believe I got to go to Yellowstone. I can't even believe I got to see wild wolves. I did ball like a baby when I saw them, as my colleagues can had witnessed. Um, I, I don't know. It was incredible to watch them in their natural element and... Um, watch their behaviors, learn their little, because you can see their little faces in the scopes. It was just beautiful and amazing. And I hope to do it again. And I, I don't know. It was nothing short of amazing for me. What were you feeling then? Like what was, what was bringing on the tears? I think because it's super overwhelming, overwhelming to see that in person. Just because I never thought I would. And it's something I have always dreamed about. And... As I get choked up now talking about it, I, I don't know, <laughs> you know. Um, it's just overwhelming because you're watching them and they're beautiful and they're happy and that's what you dream of. It's what I've dreamed of. So mm-hmm. I'm glad we started this off with yeah. me crying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but your but your emotion speaks to the larger picture of why all these people are there. What did how did you feel about the people too? Because we met some really amazing individuals there. Also, it wasn't I mean the wolves are the main reason, yeah. but the people. How did you feel about the people? Because we met these incredible individuals, both who were on the scientific community and also just in the general public. So how is that for you too? Lots of Steves and Johns. Yep, tons of Stevens and Johns. That was weird. Everybody, we, every time we said John, 14 guys turned around. Um, it was cute. Steve and John, dude. Three <laughs> pairs of Johns and Steves. They yeah. were wonderful. And the passion that they have and the excitement on their faces and they were caring and sharing. They let us look through their scopes. They, We were just you know, bullshitting about wolves. It was just, I, I loved every minute of it. And it was like the shortest, longest trip of my life. I wish we were still there, but, you know, you know, just to get it, I guess for the first trip, it was great. And then to meet these wonderful people and the biologists and the scientists, and they're so passionate and they've dedicated their lives to this. And I just think when you see that in other people, it's like a, um, I don't know, you feel like, familiar. You feel like I've known you forever. We're, we're the same. We're cut from the same cloth pretty much. So that was super exciting for me to meet all those people yeah. and still keep in touch with them because I don't know, we're just on the same wavelength and it's really special for me. Yeah. No, I think you, I think you echoed everything we said in the first, uh, the first part of this, which is great. And that's, you know, we, we wanted to bring you in um, as we have cats in the background. <laughs> Steven, it's always a venture with Steven's house. Um, I, so we just, we wanted to bring you in because we didn't have you in the first part and you were there and you were a vital part of, all four of us played a really huge part of having this great experience. And we, we just, again, we just wanted to get your perspective and you'll, you'll be part of this conversation as well as we go through. But so Stephen and I, before we started, go ahead. Lynn. Well, I just want to say it's, for me, it's for fresh eyes because I never thought I would be able to do what I do at Wolf Connection for a living, put it that way, so... Everybody else comes from different paths and, you know, maybe like Renee trained on this. She did this for her life. You know, John and I always wanted to be veterinarians when we were little and that it just took a weird, life took a weird course. And then like to to be able to do this as a job and to like make it your life, I just think that's, yeah. Like, I, you know, that's, I never thought this would be what I'm doing and I am. So I just want to share that to other people who think that, you know, maybe they... Mm-hmm aren't on that path yet, but it's, it's there if you want it. So you never know. Hashtag you never know. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's true. It's totally true. So Steven and I were talking right before we jumped on about a couple of topics that, and obviously we're going to, we're going to share mics here. So um, apologize for that in advance, but it'll be fun because it'll be four of us here. But Renee had taken notes, Elena had taken notes, Stephen, we had notes. So we do want to talk about, we left off with sort of this cycle 
about when we were on this hike and we were seeing all these uh, bones, which again, thank you to the individuals who took us out there to do that. And it really brought up this amazing point of the swing in the ungulate population that has occurred since wolves have been introduced back into Yellowstone. Renee and Steven, I think you have the notes, but there was something I think to the degree of 20 to 25 to one elk to bison meaning that for every 20, 20, 25 elk, there was one bison. Now in the park, roughly 25 or 30 years later, it's one to three. In other words, one elk to three bison. So that shift in the younger population has swung majorly in the other direction. And there was a lot of information that we were learning from the individuals we were with that some of these packs are actually starting to possibly learn from the Mollies, which is the one that is in the southernmost part of the park, who have killed bison since they've really been introduced, that some of these other animals are breaking off and learning how to do that. Um, so if you guys want to share what you were learning there and any things you want to jump in, please go ahead and, and do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of a... It's it's strange how nature's timing works is what I was thinking the whole time we were hearing the story because you're you're talking about uh, many layers of ecosystems and some 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 of the ways we have to handle overpopulation are are controversial especially in national parks like for example the the bison have to be called by uh, I assume by state management um, paid for by taxpayers and uh, you know, a lot of it's because migrating bison aren't super tolerated, I think, outside the park. And the, and the park isn't big enough in that valley to to house that many that many bison. But it, it, it does house a lot more than probably is the appropriate carrying capacity. Um, and it's, it's funny to hear that this one wolf pack, the Mollies, who sort of retained their Canadian reintroduction size were you know it makes sense they were they were the specialists they were specializing in bison whereas other wolf packs were specializing in elk and now there's the elk population has taken somewhat of a hit the bison population is 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 probably exceeding carrying capacity to some degree and now you find that the mollies having been so successful are now having puppies obviously and and those that that ancestral wisdom is passing is being passed down through through young and therefore penetrating the other wolf packs in the park so right as the bison herds are kind of exceeding their carrying capacity wolves could potentially be targeting bison more often because not only do they have the, the potentially the knowledge uh the, the specialty uh, but also now there's more of them. So a much larger resource. The elk may be uh, harder to come by. So it was interesting to hear that this might give the elk a break. Or I, I, there's a concept called, I, I believe it's apparent predator mediated competition or something like that, where the, the uh, something could come up where wolves start targeting bison. Therefore, they're becoming so successful that they're, that they once they call the herd of bison they start disproportionately targeting elk and so it'll be interesting it'll be interesting to see how this turns out uh you know in this like in this uh movie-esque fashion that we're just we're, we just watch unfold and and see how nature deals with it but i think the the bison are having negative impacts on the landscape uh you imagine that many animals that big just roaming and trampling and eating and not a whole lot of critters or people for that matter to to manage yeah definitely um i mean i could speak just from myself you know i've been to the park a few times before this last trip uh, my last time was a couple years ago and i remember driving into the park and then all we saw was bison. And I remember having this feeling of like, whoa, like something, something's a little off here. Like there's, everything is bison and there's nothing else, you know? Um, so I remember feeling that, that internal shock in a way um, that I didn't quite know exactly what it was. And so it wasn't until the next day that when we spoke to other individuals and they were, they shared those numbers that you guys mentioned of, how many more bison there are versus the elk. Um, 
And it is such a fascinating, it seems like a very new thing that's been happening. Um, the biologists are just now starting to, probably not just now, but like they've been in the beginning stages of studying, like what is happening? Why is it happening? And how is it going to be righted? You know, how is it going to be able to find balance? Um, and I'm sure on their own, they're trying to figure out what are the human interventions that might need to take place in the park? And then the others of being able to study the wolves. Um, what a cool thing, you know, to, I mean, just two years ago, it was still known that it was only the mollies that were the bison killers, you know, because they were, they retained a larger body percentage. They lived in the southernmost part of the park, which has deeper snow. So the only prey they had down there was bison during the winter. So they had that specialized skill. And now to hear that there's four packs that are actually able to kill bison and um, the biologist sharing that, yeah, they're, you know, these packs tend to, you know, they might leave their natal pack and join another pack and be adopted in. And with that, they're bringing those skills with them. So there's this co-evolution that different packs are having together um, that they might already naturally be finding balance in a way um, for the park. Um, and what a, what a cool thing. And then also the fact that, you know, right now the Junction Butte is 35 strong. Um, I know they kind of split. So there's like 27 on one side and a few on the other, but the yearlings kind of hop back and <laughs> forth, um, you know, enjoying the spoils of both sides. Um, the Wapitis, I think, are not too far behind in numbers. So then you're also looking at, you know, the numbers of packs. You know, you have more mouths to feed, you need more food. Um, and of course, bison being so much larger provide, you know, more sustenance for them. Yeah. Yeah, and that brings up a, a cool point that uh, potentially predators, I think specifically we're talking about wolves, obviously, um, they'll help to manage this this issue and maybe take some of the pressure off of the human beings who are, I think, are really confused about what to do. Uh, as I was reading an, an, an article and, you know, it's hard to just start letting bison leave the park. So they're, they're trying to contain them so that they stay there. They don't, they don't go onto private properties outside of the park. But I think ideally they do want, uh, when I say they, I mean, I think there's like state legislators, Congress, some representatives from Congress and the members of the um, interagency bison management uh, that are, I think trying to work together to to figure out to figure out how to, I, I guess helping local communities learn to coexist with bison herds because you got to think. I mean these these critters are massive. You're talking about hundreds of 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 animals all weigh, weighing, I'm sure, several thousand pounds, walking through your backyard, which is is going to do some damage to to some properties. And I think they're as I was reading this article, they are hoping that hunting outside of the park will become a more successful management tool because in the end, these bison will be culled. It's just a matter of whether hunters are paying into the system of conservation to hunt them or whether we as taxpayers are paying state state management to hunt them. Uh, but they will be culled because biologists know the the important science. So hopefully, hopefully, as you know, we use this word a lot when it comes to wolves and and what they're able to to offer, uh, hopefully it will provide some kind of balance, but it's, it's, it's really cool that it's even an option and that maybe it's swinging in that direction. Yeah. It really just goes to show how, when we have these discussions that both sides are really trying to work towards a happy medium or a medium, I won't say happy, but just a medium of how we can manage these species, you know, ethically and in a way that isn't going to, swing again the pendulum either side of the other yeah all three of us can really speak to the fact renee talking about the amount of bison i mean and if you want to jump in i mean we got caught in a bison jam i think on day one and that was it was just <laughs> incredible to see them coming down the slope and going across this bridge i mean if anyone want to jump in and talk about that because it, it really speaks to the amount and it it was prevalent on day two because we saw a lot, you know, a good amount of elk on day one. And then on Sunday, Stephen and I were noticing as we're driving towards the park that really, I mean, the elk seemed to have disappeared or maybe they were heading up to their uh, their summer range. Not exactly sure if that's accurate summer or range, not. Yeah. So yeah, but the bison were still there. So I, I think just the, 
how did what was that like for you all when we were in the park and we were in this bison gym and we see them coming down the hill and it's just to me i was just awestruck again by <laughs> the, the bridge scene the bridge it really was a bridge <laughs> scene in a movie so yeah if you guys want to jump in about anything that you were feeling in that moment it was cool it really was it was pretty awesome yeah i think for me watching that happen um you know, I've never been to Africa. I've never been on a safari, um, but I've only watched, you know, documentaries growing up as a little kid. And watching that mass migration, you know, you see that wildebeest have and zebra have. Um, and it's like, that's the only thing that I can compare it to because it was so epic in the amount of bison that were in this massive herd that came trampling down this huge hillside in a massive cloud of dust. Um, and it was and it was such a contrast of dramatic scenery because we were in the park so early. So how the sun was shining with the dust flaring, it was cold. So the breath of the bison was visual. Um, so, and they just funneled onto this massive bridge that was hundreds of feet, you know, above the river below. Um, yeah, I mean, we were there for a while watching them, you know, make their way. And, you know, they're bison. You're not going to make a move unless they want to move. So we, you know, you just have to wait until they clear out. Um, but it it couldn't have felt more wild than that, just being surrounded by the bison and just watching them do what they do. It felt like I was part of the Kevin Costner Yellowstone series for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but I think I got him some good footage to send. <laughs> Kevin, if you're listening, I'll send you some footage. Um, it was pretty incredible. It did feel wild. It felt He's definitely listening. Nature. I know he is. It felt it felt like really in touch with nature at that moment. We just all kind of stopped and stared. And it was really incredible. It's one of the moments I will never forget. Yeah. It was one of the weirdest scenes I've ever filmed in my life. Because, I mean, uh, ho hopefully we'll get that video up soon, actually. Because that would be a cool... That'd be a cool video to show, but they're just coming down this super steep grade and they, you know, I'm, I'm filming them up there. It looks like this wild American Serengeti vibe. And then all of a sudden they just hit this bridge and there's cars and, <laughs> and this steel bridge and it just changes the vibe immediately. It was kind of, it was eerie in some way. I don't know if, I don't know if you guys felt that. It was awesome, but it was, there was something like Planet of the Apes-ish about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I kept thinking. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that. And you're right, because when they're crossing the bridge, the, the Golden Gate Bridge, you're like, whoa, this whole, yeah. My, yeah, like yeah. you said, a mass migration of these, I mean, huge animals just going in one, one direction across this bridge. And yeah, you're right. The landscape around you and it goes down below into this river and you go, there is a shot that something treacherous could happen, but they, I mean, they did navigate and get across and it was just, it's interesting to see how they as a group, as a herd are able to funnel themselves in a way that they're protecting themselves. They're making sure that every animal is safe and they, they get their way across the bridge. Just, it's, it was just a very cool yeah, it is. It was an awesome experience to to see that. But taking back to the point is that there's a ton of them and, and they're everywhere. I, I think every stop that we looked for a grizzly bear, when we were looking for, at the den for the Junction Butte den, there were minimum half a, half a dozen to a dozen bison just to our left, to our right straight ahead and just sort of meandering across. So they are they were everywhere, everywhere we, we were once you got probably what, like a mile or so into the park, roughly. And there was one point when I was looking through another John's scope, um, where we were like in the middle of, I don't know, we were on some mound somewhere. I don't know the landscape words. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm looking through the scope and there's like a dead words. tree. <laughs> and he's like, do you want to see a bald eagle? And I was like, move over. Yes, I do. So I look through the thing and there's a dead, it was like out, it was a perfect photo which I didn't get, but it's in my brain. Oh, right. So if you guys can see that, there's a dead photo, a dead photo, a dead tree. Dead and there's photo. a bald eagle facing away from me. And there's a bison on the bottom right, just like grazing. And the eagle turns. And I was like, where? I it's burned in my brain. Like it was just so beautiful. But again, there was a bison mm -hmm. there. I, I didn't look down. I looked down and I was like, wow, they, they are everywhere. Yeah. Just to tie it in. Yeah. No, there's yeah. a whole herd under that eagle. Yeah, and that was um, interesting too, especially when we got the privilege to go on that massive multi-mile hike um, <laughs> down treacherous, you know, hills and ice and through a marshland. Um, 
you know, especially where, I mean, we start going down this hill and there's just like tons of bison in this one area and there's tons on the hill over there. I mean, it's like everywhere you look, there is more bison than anything else. And walking around this marsh um, to go look at another carcass, it was challenging to actually walk on the ground because of how much the bison have moved through there. So you're either stepping in a huge hole from their hooves or you're stepping in a giant pile of mm-hmm. poo. Dung. Um, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. massive. Um, and so it was, it, it felt more, you know, it felt more difficult to traverse a landscape. Um, and like you had said, Stephen, I mean, it's already visible of what the numbers of bison are doing to the landscape. Um you know, and over time, that's going to start causing erosion problems and waterway problems. And I can only imagine, yeah. you know, more. Yeah, I think uh, I think the state of Montana and uh, certain Native American tribes actually have proposed hunting bison within the park, which is obviously not, I don't, that's not a very normal thing for national parks, but they have proposed it because, uh, I mean... For, for obvious reasons, if, 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 if locals can, can eat it, if locals can find abundance in a, in a herd of animals that needs to be culled for the, for really the betterment of the ecosystem there. And it's a very unique ecosystem where it's just kind of, it's collected in this one spot. So there's a lot affecting that one spot. Uh, and I think folks have proposed that. And I, I mean, I can't see that ever happening, but I think a lot of folks see this as a as a problem that needs to be sorted in another way than we've been sorting it. So I'm, you know, I'm interested. I'm, I'm, you know, maybe we're all on the same page with that, but I'm definitely interested to see how that that turns out. I think we brought it up last time. The last previous is that you're talking about this place, Yellowstone, where. Renee, you said it, and we've heard it a couple of times, it's a blessing and a curse, is that there is this stabilized ecosystem that is managed to somewhat more of a human degree where humans sort of manage this more so than anywhere else. I think if you went into Montana or even in the depths of Wyoming, it, I, I want, I'm interested to see in the future about how these management plans work in terms of bison and elk and wolves now that wolves are going to be reintroduced in Colorado. And it's going to be the challenges I think are going to be how we can strike this balance that people see in Yellowstone. And if I would think nature is going to be able to take its own course and, and, and do its own job. And we we've seen that. I think if you leave nature to do its thing, wolves are not going to, over overbreed themselves. If there's no food, they're not going to sit there and eat up all of the, you know, they're not going to breed. They're just not going to have pups yeah. because of if I don't have enough food to yeah. feed the mouths that I'm going to birth, there's no, it's not going to work out. So it's going to be interesting to see how all of these groups outside of Yellowstone are going to try and find these coexistence management programs where we let nature mm-hmm. take its course with us doing our part by doing those non-lethal methods and things of that sort. It's just interesting how the, the conversation sort of flips its script around because there's so many wild places that are out yeah. in the West that aren't in a national park that we have to see how it all unfolds. Right, exactly. And it's funny because we always talk about coexistence with wolves, but really the conversation is going to open up to a lot of animals at some point because we're encroaching on so much habitat that there's not... There's, there's really not that many places left on the edge of wild places where you're not going to have migration routes, uh, herds of herds of this animal or that animal, predators. So these conversations are going to go beyond wolves at some point. And I think maybe bison in Montana could be one of the next challenges for coexistence because the only there's really only a few solutions. And one of those would be to increase the tolerance of migrating bison outside the park so that they could disperse more. Uh, because, in, you know, in reality, 
the best management tool, one of the best management tools they have out there is, is humans harvesting wild game. But that can't happen in the park for probably some good reasons too. You know what I mean? Like it, it would cause all of these animals in the park to, to act completely different, whether that's good or bad really depends on who you are. But I think the, the visitor experience would change drastically because these animals would start having much more uh, predator pressure. So I don't know if there's a great solution, but there's definitely, there's definitely other ones. But they'll, they'll, again, require human tolerance. And I think too, I want to, because this I think dives into how, how many wolves are actually in the park. Because we're talking about population numbers. And I know we were talking with some of our uh, our friends and, and colleagues that we met in the park and individuals who, who study them. And it's incredible that the, the number rarely goes above 100. And I know there was there, the reason they're able to, I guess, sustain that number. And Renee or Steve or Elena, if you guys remember exactly, I know we had it written down. Mm-hmm. It was... Something to the effect, and I am not the best one to, yeah, to I got it. explain it, but it's birth, birth, emigration, and death emigration in the year for the population number. But I, again, I think that's, I guess, the amount of wolves that are coming in that are birthed. I think you were right about the 100. I think it's, I think it's less than 100 wolves in the actual park. But I think in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, I think that's upwards of like 500 something, 500 and change. Yeah, I think um, what we heard when we were there is like uh, the head count at the end of last year of 2020 was 135 uh, wolves in the park. Um, mm-hmm. Normally, it's about 100. Mm-hmm. Um, I think their biggest they ever had, and I don't know what date, you know, what year it was, was 170, but that's pretty rare. Um, it usually wavers around that 100 mark. Um, I mean, I could speak from, you know, the last few times that I had gone over the last six years, um, it was definitely like, we have 101, we have 106, we have 98. Like it definitely kind of stayed <laughs> in that range um, a lot. And then it is just kind of right. that ebb and flow of, you know, the birth rate and then the survival of pups. Because um, last I had heard, you know, pups only have a 50% survival rate um, to make it to one year of age um, in in the park, at least as far as outside of the park. I'm not totally sure. Um, but when they have distemper come through and things mm-hmm. like that, you know, it it's a little harsh on the population. Um, but then there is some kind of balance with that because then you have the elder wolves that pass or you have wolves that are injured. Um, you know, so there's that balance of that birth and death rate in the year. Yeah, and I think, I think, Elena, jump in here too, because when we were, we actually, were, we did get an opportunity when we were at Slough Creek, because that was the den site for the Junction Butte Pack. And, and we'll, we're keeping on this topic, but just when things pop into my brain, we got, I got to say it, is that we saw, because we've all worked here at Wolf Connection for a long time. And it's amazing the dynamics inside the Junction Butte that we saw that we can relate to some of the dynamics that we see in our captive pack here. And it was funny that all of us at different points were saying, well, there's a Daisy or there's a Bodhi or there's whoever, you know, somebody, yeah, some sort of, I have a still shot actually after we we found that, that elk kill that there were two bison to the right and there was, I, I, I got the shot and it's far away, but there's two wolves. One has them in a submission, like the tails up and in like a, in a submission hold. And it's real. it's just funny to see these dynamics play out in the park <laughs> from miles away. But it was cool like to see those, like you saw them, yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, could you, you can see them playing Bunch too. That's like so adorable to watch them play. <laughs> bunch of daisies, yeah. A bunch of daisies, a bunch of keen eyes. We were like, oh, and definitely a coda was in there. I was like, wow, even though, you know, it's far away, but you can still tell. And their little playful tales mm-hmm. and just, there was so much play. I love that part though. Especially when we went to the denning area and they were just like mm-hmm. bouncing around, like playing with each other. And then one's laying over there, one's laying with us, like they're sunbathing. It was just, of course, our pack does that too. It's just, you know, it's out in a park, yeah. a national wild park. That's all. Yeah. And I mean, Stephen, you love the fact that there was the elk yeah. sheds there too at the oh. den site, which was incredible to see that they had brought <laughs> those elk sheds. And it was, I mean, these were fair, I mean, at least six to eight points on these, on these 
racks that they had there and they're just playing with them, tossing them around. And it's funny to see those play pouncing behaviors. It was really funny. Yeah, yeah. it's cool because, I mean, I, I, I mean I, I'm probably assuming, but I could assume that they didn't kill all of those ungulates right outside their den. So the fact that there's this horde of antlers just implies that they're just playing. You know, they, they, they're doing things just to play. And that's kind of, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, and that's, uh, I mean, it's, that's a perfect segue for what I was about to say, Stephen, is that, you know, we see that behavior in our animals with what they have in their natural habitats here at the ranch. Like we have, we actually have Nolly, who is wolf and coyote mix. So she's an interesting creature <laughs> uh, in our pack. But literally what you just said of getting all those elk sheds, and the antlers and kind of making a pile, you know, in their space, Nolly does that with her sticks in her habitat. Um, and she'll kind of shift whatever her favorite spot is in the habitat. And she'll just, all of a sudden, there's like a pile of sticks in one spot. Um, and it's not by us. It's completely by her um, making whatever her, you know, her playground is um, in her habitat. And, uh, you know, just witnessing their behaviors. I think that was also the biggest thing that I took away from even my first time going to Yellowstone is that, you know, seeing these animals in the wild in their natural habitat, expressing natural behaviors. And of course, here at Wolf Connection, you know, our captive pack has to be captive. They can't be in the wild. They weren't taken from the wild. So they have to be in a forever sanctuary. And our absolute top goal is to give them the best life possible. And that is through giving them opportunities to express their natural behaviors and I remember witnessing the wolves. I'm getting chills in my arms. Just think about it. The first time, every single time I've been back and being able to name our pack that we're seeing expressed in the wild wolves is that it just goes to show that no matter what humans try to do, try to breed wolf dogs, try to make them pets, try to have them in a zoo, try to have them as an attraction or whatever. I mean, in our pack, you know, they haven't seen a wild ancestor in goodness knows how many generations yet it still lives within them. That no matter how much you try to put these animals in a box or say that this is how they act and this is what they do and someone writes it in a book. Um, I remember someone told me my first trip is that, you know, the funny thing about wolves is they don't read. You know, the moment someone writes something in a book that this is what wolves do, <laughs> one wolf in the wild goes and does the complete opposite of it. Um, and it's incredible to see how our right. pack that, even though people have tried to make them fit into the human world, fit them into a domestic environment, they're still wolves. Right. And they, they do retain some amount of that. I mean, Renee, you, you hang, you've been around horses um, probably much longer than I have, but I feel like horses and wolves are similar in that way where they, no matter what you do with them, they retain some amount of that supernatural behavior. That's what makes them cool. But what do you, do you personally, do you guys... Do you think there, there's got to be something different about the way coyotes and wolves think? Because uh, I, I don't know. I, I spent, I camped, I tell you guys this before too, but I've never, I don't think I've ever said it on the podcast. But when I used to camp on the East Knoll at the property, <laughs> I would just hear Nolly only doing stuff. And I just couldn't figure out what stuff she was doing, but she was always doing stuff <laughs> that didn't seem to have any purpose other than just for fun. And I would turn my, I would bring like, I would bring my higher powered flashlight up there so that I could see them from far away, just to see what they were doing. And I would just shine the flashlight on her and she would always just be, I don't know what she was doing. She would be on top of the house, just messing with stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's gotta be a coyote thing. I don't know. I don't know if I've seen the wolves do that as much. You know, it's funny you say, it, I mean, we always, it's amazing. When we go to feed her every morning, it seems as though, Eleni, because you said it before as Stephen was talking, she just redecorates. She gets bored with something and she, it, it's almost, yeah. she goes, well, I'm going to change the drapes or I'm going to, you know, dig another hole. It, it just seems that she does that. She might be a Gemini. She could, it's possible. <laughs> but, but remember too, when we were in the park and we saw, I, when we described on the first part the the coyote ripping through, but we were we were on the side of the road, right? And how different the we were, we were watching bison, and I think there was a grizzly and a and a and a cub in the in the distance, and that's why we initially pulled over. Yeah. And these two white or it looked like white lightish yeah. figures started trotting towards. I immediately yeah. would go, there's wolves, they're wolves, they're wolves, they're coming straight ahead. And we once we scoped <laughs> up, we're like, you know, 
<laughs> I think well, Renee. Large. They look like wolves. They look from a distance. Yeah, yeah. and I think either big. you, or, you, or, I think Renee goes, nope, She's just like, coyotes. Oh, okay. <laughs> and but they, yeah. it's amazing yeah. how they acted in that little moment because they just sort of trotted through, didn't really pay any mind to anybody else mm-hmm. that was there, and they just sort of disappeared into the sage. So I just find it interesting that they yeah. took. I mean, they're they're pretty ballsy animals that they just they're sort of were like, oh, we're savvy. just going to meander through. Yeah, they are. They're very savvy. Thank you. Probably better word to use. Yeah, but didn't they go up to the left? You know, they were heading that way and then they started yipping. Yeah. They were like, wolves are coming, wolves yeah, are coming. Like, that's what it's at. You know, not, yeah. you know, they don't, they don't say that, but we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were like, oh, that's a coyote. Them, they're definitely yipping. I heard them but, actually saying that. Right? I heard, I heard one of them through the scope. You know, I would then five, you know, a minute later, you know, yeah. yip, 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 and then the elk were like, huh? And then the wolves came down. Yeah. You know, it was incredible to yeah. watch. Yeah, but I think you're right. I think there is a difference in the coyote and I don't, I can't speak upon it too much, but I, I, it was noticeable to see how well, the wolves, you know, react and the wolves go through the park as a, as opposed to the coyotes. And again, it, I, I hope again, first of many times I'm there to to witness this stuff. But yeah, it was definitely cool. It was definitely cool to see that. And yes, there is a difference, I think, in even with the ones we have here, the two that we have here with uh, Ayasha and Nali, how they how they act. We should do a podcast on not coyotes because they're not they're not true wolves, but just when you guys were talking about Nolly there, I was I was thinking that would be a really cool podcast to talk about the common ancestry and where they kind of split off and what makes them different. And uh, it, it's also interesting, speaking of coyotes, sort of how they, in the days where commercial market hunting was still a thing, they seem to, they just got through it. There's There's good reason why wolves didn't maybe and why coyotes were able to sort of thrive in all these different, uh, climates and environments, but that's a cool critter, man. I was actually, I was actually equally happy to have seen those two white coyotes passing through that bison herd like that. Yeah. And I think if I remember correctly, somebody said on our trip or it was right before that when that hunting was still, uh, again, they can still be hunted is their population actually Mm -hmm. exploded because of it, because they were figuring out ways Mm -hmm. to avoid. And so they were just breeding at a, an abnormal rate. Yeah to keep the populations up. And actually mm-hmm. the hunting was an adverse effect to trying to call yeah. or get rid right. or eliminate or exterminate coyotes because they are, I believe And it still could be. Yeah, absolutely. It's, again, it's just, it's fascinating all the things that we, that we're learning and, and things just keep popping up. I don't know about the rest of you. Just after we left, it, it it just seems like every day something different sticks in my brain and I, I'm scrolling through my phone and I'm thinking about the the different experiences and the different, and again, I always go back to the people too because it was just such a, it was really such a welcoming environment. And I, I know I said this the first time, but it, it was just a very different bubble to be in of, you know, people and biologists and, wolf watchers and tour guides and the familial aspect that was there that I believe translates into what we see with wolf packs is that they're a family. I've, I heard a couple people who were looking through our scopes who were just driving by, they stopped and they go, oh, what are you guys looking at? And we let them look at our scopes. And it's just that, fa- they, oh, they look like they're just being a family. And it's really like that's such a hard, that's such a real thing I think to drive home is that this is a species that among all other things really cares for one another in their own pack. And it was just cool to see that correlation between human and wolf when we were there for that short period of time. Well, it was like meeting, meeting family members you didn't know you had in a different place of the world, you know? And then think about who else we haven't met, you know? And we keep traveling and looking for other people that are mm. like-minded and have the same passion. Yeah, I think yeah. that's. I think yeah, it's it's such a great point to to bring to bring home. I mean, I'm I'm trying to think of some of the. I think there was one other thing. I, I know we touched on the bison and we touched on the packs, and I I think as we close this this part of it, and this will be our our part two. So this will we'll sort of wrap this up and. Mm-hmm. What what are you all taking, I think, from this uh, 
I think what I, the one thing, I, first of all, I, again, I'll just say thank you to everybody who is listening, who was there to the, the, the restaurants and the, the shops and everybody who is making a living up there in Gardner and doing their thing and, and really showed us uh, to be, you know, to welcome us in was great. But I, what I, what I found fascinating is really just the shift that we were talking about at the beginning of the, of the, of the episode is just that there is this huge shift in bison elk. There are these other packs that are, they're now going to evolve because some of these wolves are breaking away from the mollies and the junction buttes. And we may actually get to see larger, we may see the same numbers of wolves, but the pack size could be completely different. We could see maybe some of the smaller packs get absorbed into these larger packs where we have, maybe we only have four or five packs. I think right now there's eight or 10. I think 10. There's 10, but they're a little bit smaller. Yeah, they're um, currently, I was just looking at the notes. Um, also earlier, I said there's 135 wolves at the end of last year. It was 123. So apologies <laughs> to any biologists that I got your numbers wrong, but I did correct it with my notes. That's 123. It. That's right. Um, but uh, it was shared that there um, is currently nine packs, 10 if you count um, 1154. It's a alpha female that split off from the Junction Butte. Um, there's a few members. I think one eight mile joined them as well. And uh, it was interesting to hear because, you know, some of our colleagues that were out there were like, well, we'll see. I mean, you know, we're just calling them 1154 because that's her radio caller. But, you know, if they successfully have pups next year, you know, then they'll essentially earn their own name as their own pack. Um, so that, that was fascinating to hear, you know, what their observations are with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Stephen, what are you, what's the thing that you're sort of, that you are going to take from this, the first experience? Because again, this will not be the last. Uh, well, I obviously had a slightly different experience than you three because I was able to drive from Colorado to Montana. So I was able to meet, I met several new people that I'd never met before. Uh, I stayed with a few people that I had never met before and had some of these conversations with them. And really what it comes down to is uh, it's clear that most people have a very balanced and critically thought out perspective about their points of view and the extremes and the polarization in some of these conversations is not going to be helpful for anybody. And that there's, there's, there's political motivation involved in this and misconceptions about groups and painting groups with a broad brush. And, and all that leads to is groups feeling isolated, ignored, and, and resentful. And, you know, it's obvious that we can't be so quick to ignore each other, to ignore humans um, for the sake of, of even animals that we love because it's, it's clear that we need each other to collaborate, to cooperate, uh, to make any real headway. And... That means that we need to include everyone's point of view. Uh, and that means pro-wolf folks, um, hunters, ranchers, at every turn of this conversation because they all want the same thing. And the truth is that ranchers are protecting that outer layer of wilderness from commercial interests, the places that we all love to experience. So in their own way, whether they like wolves or not, they're helping to protect wildlife and they're helping to protect wolves, really. And they're giving opportunities for habitat for wolves. And uh, same with hunters. I mean, I don't think a lot of people know this, but hunter dollars, hunter tax dollars are what pay for a lot of these conservation projects. So to paint these groups with broad brushes is really just damaging to our, to our psyches as human beings who are collaborating on this planet. And, and also not so helpful for the critters and the landscape. Elena, what about you? What are you taking away? Uh, for me, I think it was more... Um wolf aspect, you know, getting to see them in a natural habitat and all that. Um, it's just, I don't know, it's beautiful to watch and the people part as well because um, I'm always a big fan of meeting, I mean, not, they don't necessarily have to be like-minded, but it was very nice to to find, I, I, I don't know, it's like how I feel about the people here. It's like a, a different part of my family, so... That was be be wonderful mm -hmm. for me. I think about them every day. I'm glad we friended them and, you know, we can be lifelong friends, I hope. Just because, like, it's a shared interest and it's just comfortable and it's nice and you can have intelligent conversations about it and everybody's got their opinion. That's great. But the passion that I saw and the connection was really lovely. 
yeah. for me. Yeah. We're going to have to get creative with our uh, our contact books, though, because there's going to be a lot of Steves and Johns. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to work on code names for that <laughs> one. put last names from now on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, I think it, um, uh, you know, nature and animals uh, create this common ground for people to connect over. Um I mean, like I said, I've been to the park just a handful of times over the last few years. And each time I meet somebody new and at the same time, I still see old people that I met from the time before. And there's like recognition and checking in how each other are doing, even though, you know, we haven't spoken to each other in two years. Yeah, we're able to jump right back into it when we see each other again in the park. Um, and I think that was such an experience is you have all these people lined up with scopes and cameras and things. And we're watching a den site yet to see the connection of the people sharing what they saw the day before and having such pure authentic interest in each other's stories and the amount of airdropping that happened from people's phones that like we don't even know each other but we're sharing photos <laughs> we're sharing videos just to like see this cool stuff and share the experience um you know we had the pleasure of having uh, a potluck dinner um at a colleague's house with other other people we met as well and I think that was the fascinating conversation that was happening is that on the outside in a broad way, it looked like we were all there for the wolves. But when it came down to it, we all had something else to bring to the table, whether it was a different animal that was more our quote unquote heart animal or uh, the passion behind why mm -hmm. we wanted to be near the wolves or, you know, wolves and cougars or birds or grizzlies or elk or marmots, you know, I mean, or otters, you know, I mean, it, it, it was just amazing to see how it blossomed <laughs> into it's wolves and more it's wolves and it's everything it's yeah. wolves and it's everyone. And, um, that, that, that hits, that hits deep for me. Yeah. I, I echo yeah. all, all of what you three have said and, Again, I think the experience, and I hope we did a, a good enough job to convey what we've all what we all experienced here in this wonderful park. And I, I think if you get the opportunity to go there, you will meet some incredible people. And here's hoping that you get to witness some amazing animals, whether it's grizzly or bison or elk or pronghorn, eagles, hawks, wolves. Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And I, I think it's a beautiful conversation that, again, we're going to continue to have, but it was just, we wanted to give all of you out there yeah. an opportunity to listen to what we experienced, what we got from it. And it, uh, it'll stick with us for a long time. So again, thank you, Stephen, Elena, Renee. Thank you guys for just coming on. And I, yeah, this thank, is, you guys. thank you guys for, for being part of the, part of the trip. This was great. Hey, this is my first, po first podcast, so thanks, everybody. <laughs> Th thanks for listening. Yo, yo. <laughs> mm. Any random, like, one-liner facts that you guys remember hearing? I, I, I was just thinking of one. Who would have known that white-tailed deer, or who would have thought it, I guess, that white-tailed deer were the rarest animal in Yellowstone? Any other one-liners you guys remember like that that people might be interested in? Steven stole mine. <laughs> Uh, my other was um, well, how bison have their own funeral ritual for those that pass. Ah. And they commented how they're, you know, it's very much like elephants and how each bison right. will go to a carcass and in a way do their own moment with the carcass and move on. That was crazy. Um, and, and, it, and that hit me because I remember the first time I went there about, you know, five years ago and a biologist had told me that Bison of North America are our elephants, essentially. Like, they are the elephants. They are the <laughs> wisdom keepers. They are the ancestors of our land. Mm. So hearing that was, yeah, I'm about to cry. <laughs> that was cool. Yeah, I forgot about that one. I remember 1154 being one of the oldest ones, I think. One of the, the eldest female alpha or just like one oh, of the yeah. oldest wolves they've ever seen. I think she's like 10, 10 plus. 1154, because I remember she's white with the collar and all that. So I remember being like, wow, that's a that's a hell of a life, girl. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're doing good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, rock on. I'll just, uh, 
the one thing I remember, I think I wrote this down, or Renee wrote this down, or somebody wrote this down, but the amount of elk, it's basically, I think it's an elk, one and a half elk per wolf per month is what they ingest. And when you, when you think about the size mm. of an elk, you know, let's just say it's rounded up to a thousand pounds. If it's a big elk, it's a thousand pounds or something like that. And a wolf is maybe a hundred, maybe it's a hundred pounds, probably, you know, anywhere between 80 and 90. Just think about the amount of consumption that happens just per wolf for that animal. And it's just insane the amount of, you know, meat that's able to be consumed that they're able to handle, they're able to traverse with all of this meat, either whether it's back to a dense site, whether it's to lay down, whether it's to digest, and just the amount that they need to continue to move is fascinating for such mm-hmm. a really a, a smaller <laughs> predator. And I don't know, I just I found that fascinating. That was that was something that they, they eat up to twenty pounds a day. Yeah, they yeah, can eat I up believe, to. T- I believe one of the guys said that. I think I in like, one dang. sitting. One sitting, yeah, one they sitting, can. Right, one sitting, yeah, yeah twenty pounds that's, a day. That's insane. Yeah, it's for a lot. They're lean little bodies, you know, not little, but lean bodies <laughs> that are just you know constantly in motion. It's crazy. Yeah. Crazy, and they can, and they're marathon runners, man. They can go, they can go forty, fifty miles at a at a clip, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's great for us to end on. Uh, thank you all for for listening. We did. Stephen loves to say that we did it. We got there. We're we're going back. So we'll keep you all posted on that. But yeah, uh, keep checking oh, yeah. out Wolf oh. Connection socials uh, for any videos, photos. We're all gonna you know go through all of our stuff and you'll be getting a slow drip. It'll be really great stuff. So thank you guys for following along on the trip. Always, uh, you know, hashtag Wolf Connection, go to wolfconnection.org. Any of the wolves that we spoke about here today, if you guys want to take a look at them, Nolly, uh, Daisy, Kenai, any of our entire pack, go on wolfconnection.org, check them out. Howls to all of you out there and we'll be with you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Looking to support Wolf Connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack? Just go to wolfconnection.org, click on the Donate tab, and find out more information.